All right, folks, a quick message before we get started from our sponsors, React Health. React Health, formerly 3B Medical, a leading provider of sleep, sleep diagnostic, and respiratory products. Now back to the show. All right, welcome, everyone. We're getting ready for the pre-cows. Um, guys, what do we have for today's agenda on this Sleep Tech Appreciation Week? Hey, Jerry, we've got Patrick Sorensen coming on board. Uh, Patrick and I met many years ago when we both taught at the Atlanta Sleep School, and he has been one of the leading, maybe even the, the leader in pediatric sleep technology for a couple of decades. I mean, it, the guy's uh, history is fantastic, and I'm excited to hear what he shares with us today. Couple of decades. Hey, I, I'm just saying, put on your nostalgia slippers because we're, we're going back in time to yeah. an era of, of polysomnography where it, it was a science. I, I'm excited to hear what Patrick has to say. I know he's been in the field for a long time. And, uh, you know, he uh, he's, um, I don't know, he's an innovator in his space. And it, there's not a lot of people who work at, at NIH today and, and get to do research on a regular basis like he does. So I, I'm super excited because I think we're going to hear some um, you know, really telling things about um, the science of sleep. You know, you, you said about the NIH, that's what I'm curious about. I, I'm imagining a guy that comes in and he has like one of those cards and the doors open up and it's all marble walls yeah. and marble floors and you're walking in and you get scanned and all that stuff. It's like men in black. It's just yeah, like yeah, men yeah, in black. Yeah, yeah, exactly. in exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's, that's awesome. what I'm imagining. I mean, it, it must yeah. be, uh, you know, really really crazy to work in a place like that i have a friend uh who's a contractor for the nih and he told me that what he told me rather is he can't talk much about it or what he does he can't go on social media because everything is monitored it's it's pretty wild to hear that so i don't talk much about his work as a result so that's what i'm imagining like you said men in black or what was that movie true lies remember true lies yeah uh, without oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, walking through these uh, halls with the uh, marble floors and everything, I could just—we're all we're quoting old movies. Uh, <laughs> that's terrible. Hey, we're old guys. That's we're true. Right that's true. Yeah. yeah, some of us still have hair, but uh, you know, that's a different, <laughs> different movie altogether. <laughs> all right, guys, uh, uh, let's let's get ready for the show, folks. Stay tuned, and we're gonna we're gonna uh, bring on the the main show. Okay, just a few seconds for a word from our friends and sponsors, React Health, formerly 3B Medical, a leading provider of sleep, sleep diagnostic, and respiratory products. Their Luna G3 family of PAP devices are FDA approved and offer cellular modem standard in CPAP, AutoPAP, bi-level and bi-level ST modes to treat all kinds and a full range of sleep disordered breathing. The magnet-free line of PAP devices or PAP masks include Siesta Full Face, Siesta Nasal, and the Rio 2 Nasal Pillows Mask, all of which have less than 1% refit rate. And uh, 
For more information, go to reacthealth.com or contact your local React sales representative. Now back to the show. Lights out. Welcome everyone once again to another episode of Sleep Tech Talk, the sleep podcast. Special podcast because this week is Sleep Tech Appreciation Week and we have somebody extremely special this week for you but before we go there want to introduce your hosts and friends Robert Miller, Emerson Kerr and me Dr. Jerry George Money Corot here to provide you with some entertainment for the next few minutes hopefully you'll stay on talking about staying on do not forget to hit the like button hit the star ratings and subscribe to the channel and or the podcast and most importantly share it with your sleep tech friends this is your podcast the sleep tech talk this is for you for your friends so let's go out spread the good words and at this time as we approach sleep tech appreciation week with that being said emerson could you give us a rundown of what's happening today oh excellent thanks um Sorry about that. I accidentally hit the wrong button. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Good deal. Hey, thanks, Jerry. Um, you know, we're we're always uh, a, you know a laugh a minute here. Um, today we've got a great friend on, as always, Patrick Sorensen. You know, before I read this, you know, one of my best memories with Patrick, and I bring this up to him often, is years ago, uh, I was in Boston when he was still working there at Children's, and we had one of the best dinners. We walked around downtown, light snow, cigars. Uh, it was just an epic, epic moment. And it's one of those things I wish I could go back to, but instead we're going to do a podcast today. <laughs> but let me tell you a little bit about Patrick. Um, Patrick entered um, the field of sleep and its disorders in 1987 when he was completing his bachelor's degree in psychology and biology. Upon graduation, Patrick took a job at Children's Hospital in Boston with Dr. Ferber a renowned pediatric sleep expert. During Patrick's tenure at Children's Hospital Boston, he obtained his master's degree in child development, where he focused on intellectual development, attachment theory, and language acquisition. Currently, Patrick is working at the National Institute of Mental Health in Bethesda, Maryland, where he is the research and methodology associate working on projects that include the study of the EEG of sleep during the development of children. Apologize for the background noise with our wonderful golden retriever, Patrick, but uh, that is our big girl, Ginger, and she's just applauding your presence here today with us. But uh, Patrick, I'll tell you what, you know, what a great story, what a great resume. I appreciate you condensing that down for us, but, um, you know, if you can come off mute, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about your journey. I mean, all of us kind of found our, our way into sleep a little bit backwards, but how did you get into sleep? What led you down that road and particularly pediatric sleep? I needed to pay for school somehow. So I, I took it. a job in the sleep lab. I thought, you know, that sounds interesting. I don't know anything about that. So um, that's how I got into sleep. Back then there was no training, formal training programs. I was working um, in, a, in a cardiac station where we did non-invasive EKG testing um, and I was doing that overnight. So it was a natural transition to, to sleep, overnight sleep. 
Um, and that's really how I got started back then. Um, you, you had to adjust CPAP by sneaking in the room and turning a valve. And um, when Respironics um, came out with the auto adjuster, um, that was a, a phone connection in the control room. That was that was a godsend to us. Um, so uh, that was uh, purely adult, adults. And then when I graduated, um, that's when I started my pediatric um, experience uh, in Boston. Um, all along, uh, throughout my career, I noticed that kids on the spectrum or with other developmental delays had um, fewer uh, sleep spindles. I don't want to say frequency because people think about frequency as in hertz, but um, they did have scanty or absent sleep spindles. And Ferber and I, uh, Dr. Ferber and I, would have many conversations about that. And then um, I started uh, managing the laboratory in Washington, D.C., a pediatric laboratory, and noticed the same things. And that's how I came into contact with Dr. Ashura Buckley, who is also very interested in the EEG of sleep. And what we're looking at and what she's already found is that sleep spindles um, are seen at various frequencies um, throughout the night in kids uh, on the spectrum or with Down syndrome or with neurodevelopmental problems, and that there was a difference um, in the number of spindles compared to controls. Uh, so sleep spindles um, are coincidental with the social smile. So at about three months when sleep spindles develop, the child will smile at you socially as a reaction to mom or dad smiling at them. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And so um, when I met Dr. Buckley, she was uh, into that kind of science that there's gotta be something in the EEG that, um, that will herald um, these delays and perhaps we can improve on those delays by getting them services as quickly as possible. So that is very important work. She's already shown um, that there are differences. So what we're doing now is looking at sleep spindles in these populations and com also comparing them to controls. And we run it through a spectrum analysis and we look to see um, how many spindles occurred on each patient for each night. And we're coming up with some very interesting data that's not out yet, so I'll stop there. Um, but there is something there. I've always, um, you know, in 1987, CPAPing was, that's what we did. We split them or we did night, a baseline followed by a, a CPAP night. And it was all about the breathing, but I've always been interested in the EEG of sleep. And so I'm in a perfect place right now to, to continue with that work at NIH. You know, Patrick, that's fascinating because, you know, so often to your point, particularly in sleep and the world that, that the, other, the three of us live in, it's always about breathing, you know, and, and we always forget the somnology book. What does it have? Almost a, a hundred different disorders in it. And it's just fantastic to hear you talk about something that's so different than what we typically hear about in sleep. 
in that regard, when you sort of, when you look at some of the other things that you saw when you were, you know, running the sleep labs there in Boston and Washington, what were some other interesting, you know, uh, presentations that you saw that were unique to those? Because in both of those places, you'd certainly got the rarest of, of, of conditions to get to, to test and monitor. What were some other types that really stood out in your history that you know, you're just never going to forget? Many things come to mind, um, but I'll keep it short. I, I noticed, um, or Dr. Ferber uh, and I worked in the Department of Electrophysiology. So that's where I learned to recognize um, discharges at night. So that's, uh, he ran a more extensive montage where we would look at the F's, C's, P's, and O's. And if discharges or seizures were of concern, we would add the mid-temporals bilaterally. So I'm very uh, well-versed in the looking at the EEGs uh, during the night. Most in pediatrics, most of that is big tonsils, big adenoids. Um, but we do CPEP some children if the T and A, tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy, was still unsuccessful. So we'd study them again. And if there was still obstruction, um, we, we would CPEP children. And they still do. Um, and that I, I can get a CPEP mask on anyone after that experience. Um, so... Uh, discharges during sleep is what really got me into looking at the EEG of sleep. Um, uh, and um, very few labs run that extended montage where it's more, uh, where discharges are more recognizable. We, we want to tell the referring physician not only that there were discharges, but where they're coming from. And with that extended montage, we can kind of zero in on where the discharges are coming from by looking at a reversal, which is when the um, um, channels uh, have a, a sharp discharge and they point at each other. And we can kind of uh, zero it down to where those discharges are coming from. That's, that's, that's been my uh, thing all Patrick, along. That, yes. That's just so, so cool. And so like uh, Emerson said, fascinating to hear this. And, but what drew you to the pediatric side, ultimately? My work with Dr. Ferber. It wasn't going to be a career. I just found a job. And um, he showed me the pediatric side of the sleep world and um, was able to get me excited about that, excited about pediatrics and working with pediatrics. It's not an easy job. It's a tough job. Um, to work with pediatrics. And um, th that first year was really tough um, because not only do you have to deal with the child, you have to deal with the parent. And how do you do that? How do you balance those two? Um, and that, that can be a very difficult thing to do, but I came up with a protocol on my own to, to get me through that process. Um, I, I've got to I've, I've ask this because that point that you said um, about you're not just dealing with the child, but you're also dealing with the parents as well. And from uh, as a physician, you, this is something that we learn in the pediatrics is is the medical legal side of 
of working with peds. So have you had any interesting cases like that, any Manchhausen's type of thing that was refuted because of because of the sleep study or anything else that was that was really interesting uh, on the medical legal side? I'm just really curious now that you're saying this. That's a, actually a very good question. There's usually no direct evidence of Munchausen's by proxy where the parent uh, prevents the child from breathing because they know they're on camera. So we rule Munchausen's out because the camera is there. Um, if there's a perfectly normal study and mom is saying he stops breathing and he, it, he turns blue and we don't see any of that, we can kind of say that um, it, it certainly is an apnea. Um, so that's actually a very big part of the pediatric sleep world is, is ruling that out. But you, you prevent that from happening by um, having the camera staring at them in the room. Um, and um, what, what we're, uh, and that, that, that um, lends itself to the legal aspect. Was it a normal study? Um, did you get supine REM and there's still nothing? And mom is saying that um, he stops breathing at night. Um, so after they see me and they get an, a normal sleep study, I don't know what happens, but I have often put in my reports um, that one of the um, explanations for this could be Munchausen's by proxy. Awesome. Hey, Patrick, I want to switch gears on you just a little bit and talk about NIH. Um, I actually had the, the opportunity years and years ago to, to visit the sleep, I think maybe one of the sleep labs at NIH um, that uh, had purchased some new equipment and I went on site and did some training. Um, it, it was like walking through the hallowed halls of medicine. I mean, it, it, was, a, it was an experience going to NIH. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your, your role there, what you do, and and how it's just very different than you know our, the run-of-the-mill sleep apnea lab, um, you know, in the traditional payer world. Uh, NIH is a wonderful place to work. Um, uh, what I do in research and methodology is I make sure that the studies are done correctly. Um, we measure every head we touch. Um, I make sure that. Um, all of the sleep studies are done, are performed well. It is lights out, lights out, or did you allow the child to watch TV for an hour and then allow him to fall asleep? That makes sleep latency an hour and a half or whatever, when it really is 15 minutes uh, or so. Um, I score all of the studies for these research kids, but I also score other studies. Um, we do adults. Um, the way the NIH works is that the referring provider um, wants to rule something out under their protocol. So we see people with cancer and neurofibromatosis and all sorts of interesting, sometimes sad, but interesting conditions. So in that regard, um, it, it it keeps, it keeps it very interesting. But I score all of their pediatrics and this project, which is called ESPs. So I score all of those for scoring interscore continuity. If anyone else scores them, they might score them differently. So it's important in research to, to think about those kinds of things. 
Um, NIH is a, a wonderful place to work. I started in March of 2020, uh, the day before everything shut down due to COVID. So I'm now going in uh, kind of on a hybrid basis. Uh, as needed, I go in, but I do most of my work from home. Um, NIH, uh, the, the referring pro providers are usually looking to rule out um, apnea and limb movements are a, a big factor here. Um, and, uh, but, but we get all sorts of referrals, referrals um, for apnea and discharges, seizure activity. We, we do a lot of studies for those kids um, and adults. But usually if you're an adult, somebody knows about the discharges already. The um, incidence we see of unexpected discharges is about one to 3% of all the children we see, including the ones where we're looking at spindle activity, which is uh, unexpected um, and actually adds a special wrinkle to our research project. If you have discharges, are your spindles going to be different just for that reason? Um, so, um, we're also at NIH, we're also looking at NIRS, near infrared spectroscopy. It's a patch that you wear on your forehead and on your arm. Uh, and um, it looks at saturations in a different way. And so we've just started that project. We've had one patient so far, but we have several booked in November and December. And that's that's my project, personal project, where we're looking at those things. We have other projects as well. We're looking at long-haul COVID adults. If you have long-haul COVID, uh, we study them uh, and are able to come up with numbers for atmic events. Unfortunately, not all of those have a baseline. So it's hard to say he's worse now than he was pre-COVID. Um, but it's a project that we're that we're uh, performing. We're also going to look at elect, uh, electrical stimulation of the brain to try to elicit sleep spindles. Um, like I said, sleep spindles are very important when it comes to um, socialization, co coincidental with the social smile. So we we spindle for reasons. Um, but I also think that it's involved with memory. So he, uh, uh, the principal investigator on that project is send, sending a, a very small electrical charge to try to elicit spindles. And we're gonna look and see if memory was improved, not improved, worsened um, by doing that. That to me is a very exciting project as well. I've always been interested in seeing how sleep affects memory and, um, as we know, um, that it seems to be that during the past 24 to 48 hours, we're writing to our hard drive in the hippocampus. And um, as um, the person transitions in non-REM, as the person transitions into REM, we think that they're kind of sorting out those memories to the emotional content, to the, uh, to the visual content of dreams. And hopefully we can zero in on that a little bit. Um, just to 
add a thing about NIH, you walk down those halls and you see pictures of the people who um, discovered the genome and, and genome mapping. And um, it's a very rich environment. And I'm lucky to be working with these people. Patrick, you know, one of the things that just comes to mind when you're talking about some of this is, you know, we see, you know, the proliferation of AI in sleep um, and that sort of thing, you know, and something that, that came along recently is some of the development of looking at, you know, uh, psychiatric and neurologic disorders, you know, through EEG. Is that a space where you guys are, are looking at is some of the psychiatric side of sleep that... <clears throat> does present itself in an EEG? That's a good question. Um, we're not, uh, uh, schizophrenia has been studied ad nauseum in the EEG of, of sleep, um, but the neurodevelopmental kids, um, th that's where we're really interested in seeing whether there is spindle activity, scanty or or is it absent? Sometimes spindles are just replaced by either beta activity or theta activity. You don't see spindles. You see other waveforms that, um, that seem to replace spindles. Is that a bad thing? Um, is that indicative of their neurodevelopmental problems? Um, that's one of the things we're looking at. Where do you think that will take you next? You know, when you, by being able to see that and, and, and study that, what is the theory of where this will lead you <clears throat> on the other side of connecting these dots? Professionally? Mm -hmm. Well, there will continue to be new projects. We're, we're looking at in the future, um, what those centrals following size actually mean. Should we really be counting them? If there's a DSAT, sure. If, if there's an arousal, sure, we're in the business of looking at sleep, but we're looking at the central events that follow size, where there's a one to 200% increase in tidal volume and you knock out your drive to breathe for a few seconds. Should we be counting those? The rules uh, that I just mentioned are there, um, but do those centrals mean anything? Uh, so, um, where do I see my, myself in five years? I, I, we'll probably still be looking at spindles and spindle activity. They've looked at the EEG in many different ways, um, ADHD and things like that. And, and we're not able to discern anything of value. But I think with memory, um, learning and socialization, I think spindles have a, a reason for sleep. Um, I've read many, thing, read many things about spindles, but I've never seen anyone say, that's why we do it. That's why we have spindles. And so maybe we'll get to the bottom of that. Hey, Patrick, I know that Jerry is any second about to jump in and tell us we're out of time. So before we go, I just wanted to tell you that um, talking to you makes me feel very nostalgic about the, the field of sleep medicine. Um, and uh, and I just appreciate the, the context of the discussion today because it really takes me back to my roots when polysonography was a, a true science. And what we did every night was, um, you know, we was a little bit more of a scientific approach to identifying sleep and, and sleep disorder. So uh, 
we I'm glad to, to have you today and, and it's been uh, great talking to you because I'm pretty sure Jerry's about to cut us off. Well, I'm going to butt in before he does. I think the other thing too, Patrick, is for those people, our peers that are thinking there's nothing new under the sun, you've definitely shown us today that that one little thing that they look at every single night is, is could potentially be a key to something else in sleep. And you and I, we all have friends that were at interesting moments in time you know, in, in their careers where they got to be a part of something special. And it sounds like you've definitely tapped into that. And it's going to be a lot of fun for all of us to see where you take that and and, and as our champion and, and being on the frontier of what's happening in sleep. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, uh, I believe that um, looking at the EEG of sleep um, for something other than staging and arousals, uh, fragmentation of sleep um, is a very important step in this process. Patrick, uh, yes, these guys are right. I'm gonna be the buzzkill here and tell you that we're out of time, but I, I too have to echo their sentiments because it's just talking to you, I am so fascinated. I've, we're, we've overused the word, but to their point, it's brought me back to why I was initially excited about about sleep, you know, to be able to see these waveforms and see something new and something different and uh, not just be, okay, we brought them in, they got apnea, get them in for the second night, pop them and then send them home. But this is finding all these really cool things to see and, uh, and uh, be intrigued by them and trying to figure out why. I wanted to ask even more about, uh, about the, the dr dream piece that you were talking about or where the signals are going. It's just so, so alluring to hear that. And I'm trying not to use the word fascinating over and over again, but that's truly what it is. But we are out of time. If anybody wants to reach you, where could they find you, Patrick? Uh, my email address is patrick.sorensen at nih.gov. Thank you. And uh, are you on LinkedIn or any other social media that I am? I am on LinkedIn, but I can't talk too much about uh, NIH projects on LinkedIn or any social media. They're, they're very careful about that. I, I understand. I have a friend that uh, is a contractor over at the NIH, and he told me he's uh, it's highly regulated and we get it. So thank you for that. And uh, we thank you so much for joining us. This was a very special episode for, for the three of us, especially, and I'm sure for all the folks out there. So thank you so much for joining us. And all the folks out there, all of you who are listening and watching us, we thank you for joining. We hope you enjoyed this special episode on uh, during Sleep Appreciation Week. Do not forget to hit the like button. Do not forget to hit the star ratings. Be sure to comment. Be sure to subscribe. And most importantly, share, 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 share the wealth, share the love. And until next time, we'll see you. We say lights on. All right, folks, before we move on to the next segment, very quick message from our friends and sponsors, 3B, or rather, React Health. They were formerly 3B Medical. For more information, be sure to go to reacthealth.com or contact your local sales representative. Now back to the show. All right, folks, post-show calibrations. What'd you all think? Wasn't that amazing? Oh my gosh, man. You know, when he started talking about spindles, he took us into another universe. 
I mean, you know, something that we just take for granted and looking at a sleep study, he just exploded that into a whole new world of what that could mean. And it just, the question is going to be, where, where does that take us? What, right. what are they, what are they discovering it? That was absolutely extraordinary. I didn't expect that. Hey, by the way, do either one of you remember what the, the frequency is for sleep spindles? I'm going to go with no. <laughs> Can I phone a friend? <laughs> I, I think I'm pretty sure it's 12 to 14 cycles per second. Yeah. I'm glad you remember. <laughs> hey, those oh. of you who are not watching us on YouTube, we had a little show right now. So um, get on the YouTube and see what just happened. Right. <laughs> no, I think what's oh. exciting about Patrick, too, is what we kind of shared at the end. And that's here's a guy who's who's doing it, who's going to a whole nother level in sleep technology and reminding us all that there's still so much more to know, so right. much more to learn. And it takes a sleep tech to do it. I mean, just him saying he goes back and physically scores those scores, records. Right. Reminds us that we're not obsolete. We we are very needed. And you know, we've got to own the space that we live in. It that was a very that was a very empowering thing to hear. I, I think that's that's a very good point because he he brought a lot of extremely, extremely tons of value, extreme tons of value in, in a sleep technologist. I mean, it, like you said, he, he defined, in my opinion, the, the craft of or the art of sleep technology with what he brought to the table today to, to our show. It wasn't just about, hey, the, we're sleeping these patients, we're uh, putting CPAPs on them, or we're helping them sleep better. This was the true science, as Robert had uh, referred to uh, multiple times, that this is the true science. And it was just so brilliant just to hear that. I, I Unfortunately, I, it brought back some bad memories of med school, but it brought a lot of good memories of all the fun, fun things that happened <laughs> during that time, why I enjoyed going to school and being in the lab. Hey, by the way, I did I did uh, realize earlier that Jerry gets just a little bit more airtime every show because his name is so much longer than ours. Emerson, that's true. We, uh, that's you know? true. Mine's the shortest, <laughs> so it just sort of shrinks fast. <laughs> uh, yeah. hey, oh so, some of us have it, some of us don't, right? There you go. I guess so. <laughs> yeah. You know what they say, long name, long nose, <laughs> long... Uh, long long sleep spindles. Long pauses. <laughs> long pauses. That's all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this was good. Oh, great stuff, guys. All right, yeah. guys. Hey, yep. all of you out there, don't forget, keep sharing the keep sharing the show. And we'll see you all next time. Take care. Cheers.